0: The title for, for this message is The Assumptions and How We Respond. I've um, always found that the story of Zacchaeus is interesting because the text itself doesn't actually say that Zacchaeus did actually a whole lot wrong. And yet the presumption of the community is um, you know they don't hold him in high regard. So it says that Zacchaeus, um, first of all, he was entering Jericho. So most likely, according to all the scholars, is that Jesus was kind of more in Galilee area and heading towards Jerusalem um, to participate in the Passover. And so that one of the main routes often took people through Jericho, which was a larger city and actually a little bit of a trade hub in the community. So a lot of goods went through that area. Um, And so as Jesus and his disciples were heading through Jericho, there was this man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. Uh, So that kind of put him in kind of odds. So understand that in this time frame, the Roman Empire is growing, and taking all of these other countries or providences under its wing, but as a, a head government, and maybe we feel this is states versus federal and whatnot, Um, there's this thing we all love to pay um, called taxes. and But the taxes went, ultimately, to the Roman Empire. And some of the countries kind of felt opposed by it and whatnot. So uh, if you were a tax collector in a local community, knowing that those taxes were going to Rome, well, the locals didn't like you so much. and so it says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and the language there uh, different from what is described as a regular tax collector. so as a chief tax collector, he is probably closer to like a um, customs superintendent, right? So trade and customs, everything coming through, taxing more wholesale, maybe in charge of all the the more uh, you know lower level tax collectors who are just, but but. In this position, he's actually gaining some personal wealth. Um, and the way in the custom of the time was uh, that Rome did not actually pay the tax collectors. The people you were collecting tax from paid the tax collectors. So if you owed Rome, you know, ten percent or whatever it was at the time, then the tax collectors would add a surcharge, and that was how they made their living. Uh, to which the locals didn't like that either. Uh, as the chief tax collector, all the underling tax collectors probably also paid a portion to the chief tax collector, um, and so Zacchaeus was actually doing pretty well for himself, and and was wealthy. And because of this, the assumption is right, even declared by the people. Well, why is Jesus going to have a meal and stay at the house of that sinner? The assumption. Now, I've studied a lot of different commentaries and whatnot because when I read this text, nowhere in it does it actually say that Zacchaeus has ever stolen money. He does say, hey, look, Jesus. One, I'm going to give half of everything to the poor. And it's also interesting, like, what would that conversation have been like? Because we
1: get
0: this whole story in a paragraph. But even the context, let me come to your house for a meal and stay there. The most likely he stayed the evening. Him and his disciples stayed at his house until the next morning when they got up and continued on their journey. And what kind of conversations maybe took place within Zacchaeus' home as Jesus is sitting there and they're breaking bread together... They're talking about life, things, who knows? Staying the night, not leaving until the next day. Who knows what was going on in that conversation? But Zacchaeus' response here is, look, almost almost a level, like the context and the language is almost a surprise. Like, look, I'm going to give half of everything I own to the poor. And if I have defrauded anybody... I'll pay them back four times. And so some people, because of this language, assume that that's an admission of guilt on Zacchaeus's part. But, but there's actually, if we were to go to trial, there's not enough here to convict Zacchaeus of doing anything wrong other than he was a Jew who was working for the Roman Empire, collecting taxes. Therefore, he's not one of us. And almost because he's a tax collector and there was probably within that time frame and culture a lot of abuse or oppression being used by the privilege of his position to you know other tax collectors probably maybe you know I want to go on vacation next week so I'm gonna levy a little bit more money on the surcharge so I have a little bit of spending money uh, or you know there was probably like there's, there's some things that went on that, that contributed to the assumptions of the people about Zacchaeus. Or stories they began to make up in their mind. But in the text itself, there's actually nothing to say that Zacchaeus took advantage of his position or soul from people. Now, this is not a popular opinion. I will tell you in every commentary i search, researched, I've looked, I have found nobody else with this. Everyone is like, yep, he's a sinner. Yep, he stole things. Yep, they just, it's its this automatically accounted thing. And I look at the text and I go, I don't see that. What if the story is actually I mean, the, the language, look. Now, if you do math at all, alright, so let's just say if Zacchaeus was stealing things, I'm going to be his uh, public defender here for a moment. Uh, let's just say Zacchaeus, uh, if he was stealing Things, right? He's amassing wealth. He's rich. So also, I mean, if you're rich, you've obviously taken advantage and stolen from people, because that's what you rich, you know, affluent people do. There's the only way you get ahead by taking advantage of people. Um, so let's judge rich people. For, um, but,
1: but let's say he, he acquires some wealth.
0: He's got some mass uh, in his account. And he comes out and he says, look, I'm going to give away half of everything I have. So he goes from having 100% of whatever this pie is to only having 50%. Right? That's half of what he had. So he's just initially started off by reducing his wealth significantly. So we go from 100 to 50. And then he says, you know what? If I have stolen from anyone, I will give them four times whatever I've taken. Which four times would be 400%, right? So if you're following the math, he's he starts with 100% of his wealth. He goes to only 50% of his wealth because he's giving away half of everything he owns, but also then makes this claim, which is just impossible to say, at this point too, if I have ever actually taken advantage of anyone, I'm going to give away 400 times in, in repayment. Like, the math just doesn't work. There's no way he could have actually done that. And I think, again, it's this, this, almost this confession of, like, look, I, I I'm going to give away half of what I have. And if I have offended anyone, if I have stolen from anyone, I will give them. And to be able to make such a bold claim, I, I think, actually argues his innocence. Like, look, I have not. Like, other than what's allotted, right? I mean, I'm supposed to be paid, and if I work, I, I can earn money and you you know? So, so let me, I'll pay four times as much. Actually, I actually think the audacity of his claim of what he's willing to do even proves his innocence further that he was just a Jewish guy living in a community governed by the Roman Empire trying to make up the best out of his life and figure out what he can do. And our assumption the assumption of the people let's label them as sinners. First of all, kind of discredit, like, one, you're in that time frame, too, just because you were working for the Romans, you were sort of pushed aside. Wow. They're the oppressor, and you're choosing to work for the man. Therefore, all of that's blood money, all of that's this, your, are and and set aside. Furthermore, you're a tax collector, which means you're taking advantage of people. And it's clearly evident because you are gaining wealth and you are rich, and therefore that's even further proof that you have taken advantage of people. And all of a sudden, without any evidence, people's story that they're making up begin to label this person Zacchaeus. But let's look at Zacchaeus's actions. Yes, he was a chief tax collector, but he hears that Jesus is coming from Jericho. And at this point, there there are rumors, even as we've seen, you know, we talk about some of the stories where Jesus healed the lepers, and he's like, hey, don't go and tell anyone, because I don't want, you know, these big crowds and whatnot. And of course, they went out like, oh, Jesus healed me, right? So, So the rumors are getting out, and Zacchaeus is curious. Who is this Jesus? He's probably heard some of his teaching, heard of some of his miracles. And, and this person who is ostracized by the community still has this longing, like, is this the Messiah? I don't know, but I must go and see. And he presses in and he finds this crowd because everybody wants to see Jesus right now. And he can't see, so he goes further down and he climbs a sycamore tree in order to see what is probably not necessarily dignified of like wealthy and whatnot, but but at what level, what are you willing to do in your life just to catch a glimpse of Jesus in your community, of God at work? I think it speaks to his heart. I mean, if, if Zacchaeus really didn't care, he wouldn't have put in all this effort to see Jesus. But he puts in this effort. Because this desire, this thing, like Jesus is coming through our town. I must see him. And so he runs down the road, he climbs the sycamore tree. And he gets to see Jesus. And I love it because it also, when Jesus is there, it's this, I must stay in your house. The language, it's this absolute, almost like there's there's not even a choice sometimes god works in divine ways that the language there is is so absolute like zacchaeus come down from that tree i must stay with you i don't have a choice i need to and yet when we talk about this love that changes the narrative it's again this moment where jesus is walking and, and even with people in our life First, we need to see, right? We need to acknowledge that something is going on. And so if we are walking by other people who maybe are ostracized or they're looking for connection and whatnot, do we acknowledge their situation? I see you lingering on the edge all the time. I wonder why they're there. And then we get a choice to respond. What am I going to do with this? Should I go talk to them? Do I not talk to them? How, do, how am I going to respond? And then we're drawn to actually react or take action. Do we go and sit with them? Do we invite them for a meal? And if we're going to have this love that changes a narrative for others as well as us, and we go through our lives every day seeing people, interacting with people, how do we respond and react? Are we so busy and so down there that we miss maybe a Zacchaeus in a tree because we're on our way somewhere? We have an agenda. Are we able to slow down and just see the people who are in our lives and to look around and be like, who who might be hurting? Who might need a connection? And to make a choice to then connect with them. This is Zacchaeus. Look, I must, I must stay at your house tonight. (laughs) <laughs> it's interesting as uh, this, this gets done and Jesus responds after Zacchaeus makes his bold claim. He says, today salvation has come to this house. And, and almost this reminder of people who have looked at Zacchaeus as other. Because he's working for the Romans, because he's a tax collector, he's other. And this reminder, hey people, he too is a son of Abraham. You want to, to make him something else because of his role or his job, what he does, uh, because he's a sinner and you've labeled him that. And just this reminder, he too is a son of Abraham, which means he too is part of the chosen people of God. He too is a part of the people whose salvation will come throughout the whole world through Jesus the Messiah. He too matters. He too It's a human being. He too is loved by God. He too is an image bearer of the divine. He too. And when we look and we think about assumptions and bias, and now the term bias literally basically means a preference based on something. Now I have a personal bias. I'm going to tell you that I believe my wife is the prettiest gal, sorry ladies, in this room right now. And you know what? I'm biased, but that's okay. Uh, and, and so bias often refers to with, with a choice and giving preference to something, right? So so we make assumptions and biases like, oh, well that person is wealthy, therefore I have a bias. My assumption is they don't you know care about helping people because they just care about having a bigger house. And if they really loved people, they would sell their big house, get a smaller house. And, get, and, and now all of a sudden I'm making up a story. I have a bias. I'm making assumptions. I have a prejudice that I'm allowing to be, to be drawn out about this individual. And I don't actually know who they are. I don't actually know their story. I know maybe what I've seen. Or uh, as I was studying this too, I uh, One of the the cautions in in assumptions and and even going into um, a specific article around educators and schools was to not end up making decisions based off a single story. Right. So sometimes, maybe in a moment, you see me and, and I do something or you hear a story about me. And based off one story or a single story, oh, well, this person must be like this. And maybe that story is actually me on my worst day. I do have grumpy days. I'm not always uh, as amazing as I am the other days. Uh, I I have bad days. One of the lines I love to say is you never know when you're going to walk into somebody else's bad day. But if that is what you choose to determine who I am, if you saw me on my worst day and then you said, well, that is who they are, you you would not like me and probably fire me right away. Let's vote of no confidence and get this guy out of the church. If you were to judge me on my worst day. And so the argument, even around assumptions and biases about people, is do not ever make biases or decisions of, or labeling of people based off one story. Don't ever allow a single story to influence you. Gather more information, learn who people are um, and where they are.
1: Uh, as we were talking about assumptions and biases,
0: um, Shiana and I was driving, you want to go ahead and come up, she's gonna share some, uh, we got this debate, and it's kind of interesting just how our brains think, because, um, uh, I basically asked her, I, I forgot the exact question, but like, what leads to people's assumptions and, and, or influences, and she immediately started talking about more inward or internal things, and my mind was entirely on, like, external. What, how, what, what are things that lead you to make assumptions about people? Just think about that for a moment. So in my mind, I'm like, how they're dressed. How they talk. Do they talk intelligently? Are they educated? But it's all these external things, like, do they smell? Do they root for the Buffalo Bills? Like, do, these are things that cause me to make assumptions about people. And external and I'm at, i asked shiana and she instantly had a different response to my externals
1: as far as um <clears throat> the assumptions i think instantly about fear like our fears play into assumptions um, and traumas whether it's our trauma or a loved one's trauma and what we know about them and taking that and just assuming that that's going to happen again. And I think that um, we automatically are afraid. So the traumas play into our fears. And we are afraid that that's going to just continue. And we assume it will always continue. And we just carry that around. Um, And then generational. Um, so if it's happened to our grandparents, if something's happened to our parents, then it's going to happen to us. And that's an assumption that because it's happened before in a generational time, then it will happen to us. And even if we don't, um, necessarily know, it's, it's just kind of ingrained, um, just kind of, I was telling him, it's, it's kind of like in our blood. It's just there. And then when something presents itself, then we become aware of it.
0: Yeah, so it's just super interesting because m- my, as I was talking about assumptions, my immediately was external. I'm going to make assumptions about you based on you. How you look, how you, eat whatever. Shanna's like, oh, I'm going to make assumptions on others and it's internal. It's my fear's. My insecurities influence my assumptions. Nothing even to do with you. It's just my fears and insecurities. And I'm going to make and pass judgment. Uh, We also talk about conditioning a little bit. Can you break that down? How do we get conditioned? Um,
1: We were talking about the stories we're told. Um, Stories we're told. (laughs) Stories we're told. Um, Whether the stories we're told by... um, our parents' stories were told by schools, stories were told by friends. Um, right now, we're dealing with stuff with Taylin at school. Um, her friends are influencing things, teachers influence things, and she'll come home and, well, my friend told me this. Like, That's not 100% true. <laughs> and you don't need to just make decisions based on that. Um, and so, those kinds of Influences make then assumptions on how we move on with life. Um, And that's a conditioning that we continue on with. And we have to, I think, be cautious on taking those things and kind of weeding for ourselves how much that's influencing us on the assumptions that we're making. Yeah. So I think one
0: of the challenges too is like how do we respond to assumptions? Right? If if we see people or people are making an assumption, how do we actually react to that? How do we break this? Or if we've heard a story and that's how do we actually take action to maybe disassemble some of our assumptions? I think for me, this goes into like the stories that uh, Leroy Barber, who uh, has done some work with the UMC, he wrote a book called Everyday Missions, and he has, uh, and and we see this in this Jesus story here as well, he says you never truly know someone until you put your feet under their table. Like, that's great, right? You work at the church and you do things, and he's like, no, no, no. You really want to learn who someone, like, until your feet are under their table in their home. You're not going to learn. And and I just the thinking about this quote. Jesus is looking up at, at Zacchaeus and saying, Hey, I, there's all these rumors about you. Uh, but you know what I must do? I need to go stay at your house and go put my feet under your table and have a conversation with you and learn who you are as a human being. And so learning, right? Leaning in, oh, maybe I have a bias or... Or I don't necessarily, you know, but to lean into that, like, hey, let's actually go get coffee. You know, I hear people whispering about you in the community, but as opposed to just buying it, I want to draw closer to you and actually get to know you. I want to hear your story. I want to put my feet under the same table. And when we move past assumptions or biases and we actually move towards learning who people are, Because again, who was Zacchaeus? He was someone who wanted to see Jesus. Who took extreme measures to be able to see him. Who responds with this like, God, I I will give away half of everything I own to the poor and to help people. I I see Zacchaeus as having this heart and and while maybe in confusion and working for the Roman Empire or this and that, there was this person who desperately wanted to see Jesus. And who's willing to respond with his wealth and whatnot to give and to make a difference in the community? Are we willing to go past our assumptions in order to respond by actually learning who people are? And when we are willing to learn who people are, then we have a love that can change the narrative. We have a love that can change the story. I mean, think about Jesus leaves Jericho. And Zacchaeus has had this encounter with Christ. Again, we don't know what they talked about, but through that conversation and whatnot, you have Zacchaeus who is committed to, to using his resources to helping others. <clears throat> right? Maybe he started his own known in Jericho called Doing Good Things. And with his, like, yeah, whatever. Like, what is the story? And it's not just the story in the moment. What is the lasting impact? When you know and you've encountered people who have maybe been prejudiced or set aside or stories have been told about, and you befriend them, and you invite them in, and you give them value because you communicate, you matter to them. What is the lasting story in their world? That's where we get to see the change. We're going to, anything else you want to share?
1: Um, I just was thinking about controlling the narrative, um, was a big one that we touched on, um, and media, social media is a big one, and just how we see everything through a filter right now. Um, we were talking about zooming out on pictures, like if we could just zoom out on everything to see this small piece of everyone's life, and if we could just zoom out and see the big picture, I think that that would help also with assumptions. Um, We just want to see everything through this big, beautiful image versus the small piece that maybe doesn't show everything so beautifully, right? Or maybe it shows only the beautiful piece, and then we see messes or
0: other pieces. Yeah, the idea of controlling narrative too, there's uh I've been interviewed, you know, with the work I do in Street Level Gang Outreach, houses Service, I've been interviewed from time to time on some of the news media outlets, uh, and it's always interesting because the conversation is much larger than what you get presented in the story, and the lines that they choose to use, I'm like, oh, well, that's a little out of context because you didn't, you know, share all of that, and then if somebody were to only hear that soundbite that you did choose to share, like, my perception would probably be a little bit different. Or if that's all you knew of me or my, you know, the work we did. And uh, with that, with this being Black History Month and, and uh, celebrating that, one of the things and that I would encourage you to do, because I know some people are, you know, they're, they're, there is some desire to actually learn where have we been oppressive, where have we done harm. Uh, but I would challenge you in that if you're 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 willing to do some work and effort to maybe learn something around some assumptions. Or why are they still upset about this? Or we, we hear those things and just heard those things last night. Oh, it's all in the past. Um, is if we're going to control the narrative, who do we choose to read? Do I want to read a text about how uh, the impact around things around Black History Month from an old white dude? Or should I pick up a text? maybe? that was written by a person of color who has a different view. If I really want to change my perspective, who am I going to choose to read? That will change how we're controlling the narrative or controlling the media as well. And so there's an opportunity for us to to respond to our assumptions, to maybe change some of our biases that give a certain people group or demographic an advantage. And this wasn't a whole people group in this story around Zacchaeus. Like it was an individual who was marginalized. And for maybe some of you like, I, I know I have a bias and it probably speaks out I really struggled to sit down with the affluent because I you worked direct services a long time as a kid. We were not very wealthy. We were would have been in kind of the working poor marginalized. Like rice and beans for dinner again, because that's the best we can do. Like those were some of my growing up. And and so my bias is towards the affluent. And it's it's mostly comes from my ignorance. I don't understand. I've never been in those communities. I've never had to manage a larger budget in those ways. And but how do we break those biases? This Wednesday I'll be out of breakfast with Portland. Christian one percenters. They're all like top lawyers, executives, whatnot. And so I'm intentionally like I don't understand you are. It's easy for me to judge you about how you spend your wealth or don't invest your wealth. And so I have breakfast with them once a month. And I have learned that they too are people. And they're trying to figure out how to live their life and how to be responsible and whatnot. And and so action, how do we respond to our assumptions about individuals? or whole people groups? How do we respond to our biases? How do we maybe change in order to see a story a little bit differently? And a story that may invite them into seeing them as a human being, which could change their narrative.